Hello, my name is Kristen and I am obsessed with all things play-based and child-led learning. Truly obsessed. I am here to help you navigate the messy and the magical on your journey to a play-based program. It is truly magical on the other side and I want you to feel each day what I feel when I walk into my classroom. I am the homeschool mama to four. I'm the founder of a play and nature-based preschool and forest school and I am here to cheer you on. I'm ready. Are you ready? Let's get going. Hello. So I have had many people message me on Instagram or Facebook Messenger and inquire about um, how play-based learning environments can work or be best or if they, I guess I should say, are the best environment for children that have learning disabilities or neurodivergent children or autistic children. And I have avoided the question for quite some time because I am not an expert. I didn't feel qualified to speak to it. And so I've been waiting for somebody to show up that could help out a little bit. And so that happened. And today I have Kayla from Little Lilac Preschool who reached out to me on Instagram. We've been following each other for a couple of years. And she said, hey, I have a topic that I have some experience with and I think this could be helpful. And I said, oh my gosh, I've been looking at for somebody to speak about this on my podcast, but just the right thing hasn't come up. So hi, Kayla. Thank you for hey. being here. Oh, thank you. I'm super yeah. excited. Okay. So I want, I want you to tell uh, the listeners a little bit about you and why you messaged me and kind of why you have some experience in this area. Sure. So I, I had thought about this quite a bit because I honestly did not used to be a play-based educator. I've been in early childhood now for 20 years and I just recently opened up my own small play-based preschool in my home about a year and a half ago. But before that, I was in a larger traditional classroom setting. And um, it was actually because of my own daughter that I sought out to learn about play-based learning. She's four and a half, but when she was born, she was, uh, she was a micro preemie and she had some medical conditions, some really scary medical conditions that um, also led to some brain trauma and some other things that required her, first of all, to have a really long hospital stay. But after that, she immediately entered the early intervention program in our county and has been receiving early intervention services since then. And once that happened, and I I started to just think, okay, aside from her supports that she's receiving, how can I, as her parent, help to support this trauma that has happened and help to enrich her learning so that she can make, you know, as many gains as possible in the future. 
And so I started doing research. I started reading everything I could about the brain, everything I could about how kids learn. And you would think, you know, man, you've been in education a long time. You don't, you know, don't you feel like you're qualified enough? I just felt like there was more out there that I could find out, especially when it came to the brain. And, and so, there is, and then you yes. came across play-based learning and your exactly. mind was blown just like mine. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's, ex- that's exactly what happened. And so, um, when the time was right for me to leave my other job, um, we decided this would be a good option because she's around preschool age now. And this is great time for me to, you know, really jump into it. So I'm still in the process of learning about play-based learning. And those of you who follow me out on Instagram or on my social medias, you've been watching this kind of unfold. And I'm, I'm not here to claim to be the perfect teacher, the perfect parent or an expert on by any means. But what I do know is what I've seen play out with my own child um, with regard to her journey and in my own classroom as I've embraced play-based learning through my own research, what I've read about the brain and about play and about being outdoors Mm -hmm. um, and how all those things really support nourishing, nourishing the brain and nourishing young children. And I think that's one word that I keep coming back to, how nourishing it is And because that was kind of what I was looking for, like, how can I, you know, there's, there's always going to be some things that we can't hundred percent undo, but my mind, what's the opposite of a trauma? What's the opposite of something that's challenging? And and to me, that's something that's, that's warm and nourishing and that helps you grow. And so that's Mm -hmm. just kind of what I've been focused on. Like, how would I nourish her? And that's how I came to the play-based learning model and started seeing how that plays out. Um, currently, she still does receive several different services through um, the early intervention program, and I work, you know, in contingent with her, with her therapist. Um, and I've had a lot of conversations with people through Instagram um, in my own life that have children who have different challenges when it comes to learning, be it, you know, a diagnosis of ADHD, or maybe they have um, mobility issues, or mm-hmm. maybe there's um, some other reason why a traditional quote classroom setting is difficult and and doesn't provide them the best learning environment so I I hear it from a lot of people it's I do too play-based learning really can support so many outcomes for children who are needing some some different ways of learning yes okay so as we move on and are chatting um some different terms will pop up and Kayla and I both um, our learning, we're both learning it, it, about um, different types of thinkers and different types of learners and different types of brains. And so if you're listening to this podcast, say in like six months, some things might change. Um, so we would just kind of wanted to go through a little bit um, some of the terms that could pop up here. And so the first is neurodivergent and my... My definition that I've used for neurodivergent, and maybe yours is different, Kayla, is um, any child who has, whose brain maybe works differently than what society's construct of normal is. Um, But I know your definition might be a little bit different than mine. I I mean, I think that's, that's, you know, accurate in a lot of ways. I think umbrella term. 
Yeah, I think there's, you know, going to be specific things what, that would fall under, like, because a lot of the words we're talking about are actually me- medical terms yeah. that, you know, medical professionals and people who do assessments use to, de- to you know, kind of just put different, you know, kids where they need to be as far yeah. as what they're going to get uh, for supports. Yes. Um, on the other hand, from, from that, when you talk about learning disabilities, that in some cases that can be encompassing something different. It could be the same, but specifically like my, my personal child would be more in the area of like motor, motor skills and um, the documented areas where she is working with a disability um, would be in some of those categories as well. So your children in, that may have motor, motor challenges or who may need access, access help for certain things, mm-hmm. um, that's going to be kind of fall under that other side, I think. Definitely. Okay. Um, is there anything else you think we need to clarify before we move on with questions? I think we're, we're just trying to clarify, I think to everybody that we are learning and that we are obviously yeah. trying to be, if anybody, I'm, and a lot of, you know, us both follow us both. Probably. Yeah. We want to say the right thing and we want to be speaking of people the way they want to be spoke of. Exactly. And there's, there's always learning to be done. Like, honestly, I'm trying to research and learn myself. Like, how do I, as a parent, raise a child who feels confident about the things that are, are yes. going to sometimes make her different from other kids? And so I, I don't know. And so yeah. I'm trying to, you know, read and, and follow adults who've gone before that I can learn from that. Hopefully I want to be able to provide that, that for her the, so that she can have that, that confidence. Yeah. But we're, I think we're all just learning. <laughs> we are definitely. Okay. So uh, some of the questions that I have gotten in the past, um, I want to kind of run past Kayla and see what she says. So, um, all right. How can we support children that have been diagnosed with learning disabilities or other neurodivergent differences in a play-based environment? Like why is a play-based environment a good space for children with learning disabilities? Yes. And I I mean, the play-based model, um, which in most, there's a lot of variety within that too. There's a lot of people who do try to incorporate as much play as they can. And then there's some models where it is, you know, a six hour day of completely open play. So there's some variety Mm -hmm. in in there, There but, but the, the, the benefit to that is that, and I'll just, I'll just use my own example again. So when you're writing goals and out goals and outcomes is what they're called in a lot of on a lot of places for when you're looking for your child. Um, in order to work on those, you have to have time first of all, yeah. and you have to have the the place and the ability to do that. So, in for one of my examples again, like we would be talking about lurking on some fine motor skills or some large motor skills. Well, in an environment where it's expected that a child sits for a great portion of the day or where it's expected that a child will um, be able to do this activity with scissors within five minutes time, those kinds of things are gonna be very difficult and challenging for that child. And so in a play-based environment where movement is much more open because the time is given for that, the space is given for that, um, it's unrestricted, that child is then gonna have so much more time to practice that skill. And that's really what it is reaching those goals and outcomes is you have to practice to get there. So um, in the play-based model where 
children are free to choose what they would like to do, where children are free to, um, you know, maybe if something is challenging for them and hard and they don't want to be put on the spot about it, maybe being able to, you know, do it in a smaller yeah. group or with a teacher one-on-one is going to be a little bit more doable for that child than to be, you know, put on the spot with everyone else at the same time, trying yeah. to complete a task within a given amount. So, so the play-based model just lends itself so much to, and not just, not just children that we're discussing in this podcast episode, all children are going to be given the opportunity to choose yes. to the time that they need yes. and to move and to yes. feel safe. And that is beneficial to everyone. Oh my gosh. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. So that leads me to my next question. And this is something that I think in the program that I founded that we struggled with a bit. Um, so many, and I, I don't want to overgeneralize, but I think a lot of public preschools maybe have better support for children who are on IEPs or who need that extra support. And they have teachers who are trained as speech and language language pathologists or special education teachers. And in preschools that are purely play-based, generally they maybe aren't part of a school district and so don't have access to those supports that are there like Monday through Friday from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. like a maybe a school district would. So what type of advice would you have for programs such as those that maybe only have one person, one teacher available all day long, like you, um, like you in your own program, or maybe have lots of like general education or early childhood education teachers, but don't have the training or the expertise to be able to or to me, or even to maybe feel like they can 100% be the best space for these children. Does that make, did that make yeah. any sense at all? So that makes sense. Uh, <laughs> okay. actually, yeah. Be- before I was doing this, um, I worked in a school where we did not have a support person for children who needed that. A lot of times children would go out somewhere else because yeah. they qualified yeah. for the services elsewhere or yeah. their parents would take them to their uh, sessions outside of school time or such. And I know that that's, a, that's that can be not accessible for some people. Yeah. Um, the other thing would be is I, I think there are some schools out there that are, you know, play-based that have that, but you're yeah, specifically talking about the small programs or the programs like mine that are run by one teacher or maybe yeah. or two teachers. Um, it is a little bit hard. So in, in this situation, I would say, I would first of all, talk with the parent and see what other services are they receiving? Mm-hmm. So is there, is there someone that can come into the space? Because in a lot of places, and it, it will depend on the age of the child, because in some places, once the child hits quote, official school age, then yeah. it's different versus like early childhood before they're, they're in kindergarten. And that really can vary state to state. Like I've yeah. talked to people through Instagram where it's like completely different from what I have just because they're in a different state. Yeah. But um, I would check with the parent and say, Hey, if they're receiving a service, is there a way they could receive it at school? You know, so that person can come to the program and help provide that. Um, you know, and, and sometimes the, the things that we can do to support a learner 
are going to be something that we can do. And, and sometimes to, you know, it's, it's going to be hard when you're the only one. So I think it's really going to be kind of a case by case um, that really is going to involve a lot of conversation with the parent yes. or the caregiver of that child. Um, you know, everybody wants their child to be in a place where they're safe and, and where the teacher, you know, can really, you know, be there to support them. And parents want that for their kids and teachers want to be able to give that. And so it is, I feel like that's a hard question because we all know that when that's a problem, it's, it's, you know, it's not a parent's fault. It's not the kid's no, fault. Right. It's not even the teacher, you know, it's not the teacher's fault. It's the way that, that things are set up sometimes and makes it really difficult um, for kids to be in that situation. And so, um, and, and one other thing, like, this is just me sharing something personal here. Like I've thought about, okay, I am one person. I obviously cannot teach every child in the world or help every kid, but Mm -hmm. is there an area maybe where I could educate myself more, um, maybe alter my program a little bit to be more accessible for that type of learner? Yeah. Um, Not that my whole program would, you know, kids are all different. So you're always going to have a wide variety of kids from all backgrounds. Yeah. And I'm not saying I would want to label a program either, because that's another thing, like as a parent of a child who who receive services. We don't want our kids to be like labeled yeah. as something less, you know? And so I wouldn't necessarily say you, you want to turn your program into something that's going to make people speak less, you know, speak down to it or whatever you want to support those families. Yeah. But I, I think, you know, is there a way that I could make my program more accessible to this type of learner? And then maybe I focus on that, Yeah. you know, and, instead of trying you know, cause honestly, that's the truth. We can only, you know, we are one person and that exactly. doesn't, mean, I, I hate to say it that way. Cause I feel like that's going to make me sound like a heartless person, but I don't mean it that way. I mean, what's your passion? What area can you do? What can you do? And then do the thing that you can do. And what I'm trying. that makes so much sense. Like now, I mean, I'm kind of bringing it back to, um, it's, it's almost like finding your, finding a niche within early childhood and saying, okay. And, and just being human and saying, I can only learn so much. Like I can only, I can only provide so much care and support for what I know right now. And so I want to do that the best that I can. And so I am not going to be able to serve every single learner, child, family, but here's the ones that I feel confident that I can like really provide an amazing experience for. And I don't think there's any shame in that because like, even if you're like me, personal experience, I have four children and they're all so different and they all learn so different. And I have to parent them a lot differently. And they're still unfolding for me and they're age seven through 16. Like I'm still learning things about each of my own children every single day. And if you think about, you know, as a parent, how complicated parenting is with just four kids, the expectation that we put on teachers, that's a lot. Like if we expect that one person can possibly know how to serve every single type of child and family and, and learner, like that's a lot to put on someone. Right. And I think to, to 
want to mention this as well. The support educators that we work with, the special educators, the speech language pathologists, the, the physical therapists, the occupational therapists, um, those people are working just as hard, if not in some cases harder because they're dealing with how many numbers of, yes. of children and how much paperwork comes along with all that. Um, so I think being able to have a, a good relationship with those educators and support people as well is super important. Um, Definitely. They deserve all of our respect. And um, I, I personally love going to my daughter's people and asking them for tips. And, you know, I try to respect their time and everything, but Mm-hmm. I go to them and I ask them things because they're trained in certain things that I'm not trained in. And I might notice something and bring it up and say, Hey, I noticed X, Y, Z. And then they'll say, Oh, well, it could be this or that. And I'm like, I wouldn't know that I'm not trained for that. I don't have a, a doctorate in that. You know, I, yeah. I haven't gone to those classes to understand how to, to look for that. Um, but then they can give me some practical tips that I can then turn around and like look for. Yeah. Um, so, so I think, you know, that's important to having those good relationships and realizing they're also human and, mm-hmm. you know, can only handle so much too. So I think Definitely. it's just really that web of working families, educators, and then the people who support that child, whatever that might look like, are all really super important in that, in that um, communication. Definitely. Okay. So now um, this is coming from my own experience and I thought maybe other people could, um, get something from this question too, if you have any advice. So a lot of times we have noticed in our program, um, uh, children will come to us when they're three and they, you know, they come into the classroom and we have a lot of experience with children that are three. So we know kind of the nuances of like what that societal construct of like a normal, typical developing child would be versus a child who maybe has a learning disability or is neuro, a neurodivergent thinker. Um, and so we can maybe pinpoint those things a little bit faster than new parents. And sometimes that can be really uncomfortable to have those chats with parents. And I have experienced this. And, and so I'm wondering if you have any tips, tricks, advice on how to gently, um, bring things up to parents or caregivers, guardians that maybe, you know, that you have, um, some concerns. Right. Um, that's a great question. And I've lived on both sides of that question now. So okay. <laughs> I feel like, you know, so first of all, we have to remember as people who work with young children, we are not, unless you are trained to diagnose certain things, we cannot make any diagnoses. Exactly. Okay. So, and I, and I know, you know, that but there may yep. be people out there who don't realize exactly. that we can't assume, oh, we think X, Y, Z. We can't, nope. that, we cannot do that. Nope. So nope. when you, And the other thing to think about too, is just because a child exhibits a certain behavior at age three does not mean they have X, Y, Z diagnosis either. Exactly. So there can be children who are just being three and there can be many things that even if you're kind of aware of it and the parents are aware of it, there may not be the ability for for them to receive an official um, support or diagnosis on something until the child's a little bit older. So I would say that when you have you know, whatever you're, you're going to be documenting the great and the challenging and the growth and the things you'd like to see. I, I'd say that's important to just make sure you kind of have, you know, a documentation of 
well, this has been mentioned because, you know, yep. nothing worse than getting three or four down, years down the road. And they're like, well, no one ever said anything exactly. about it. Like that's yeah. the worst thing. Um, and then I would say, you know, if you do need to approach a parent, um, I think leading with curiosity, leading with, with genuine concern about how can you, and this is not a fake thing, but like really the parent knows or caregiver is going to know their child best in, in most cases. And you, you can say, I've noticed X, Y, Z. Can you tell me if you notice this at home, or could you give me any pointers on how I might better support this child during X, whatever it is? Yeah. So, because that's, that's not attacking them, you know? And, and one thing I've come to understand is that I think even I can admit, I will openly admit this on a public podcast that I have I've thought that I've thought, well, this parent is just in denial. They don't want to admit that their child, whatever, whatever. It's super hard It is to, ex- you know, accept that for me, it's not that I'm ashamed or anything like that. I'm more concerned about, I guess I just want my child to be accepted and loved like yeah. everyone else. And so yeah. my concerns come more from, from that, which is, you know, probably normal for a lot of parents yeah. It's not a fear of what I think she can or can't do or what she will or won't do. I just want her to be accepted. Yeah. And so when we, when we approach a parent and they don't seem to be, you know, hearing us the way we think they should as an educator, we have to understand that families will, will go through the process differently. And there have been cases where somebody's life has been, you know, blown up about some issue and it was not an issue. Like, you know, it wasn't an issue. It was an issue with the environment, just not giving the kids enough time to move or not allowing the child any freedom or any choice, you know? So, so that's the other thing. The environment itself can, can help to support learners in a way that's going to cut out some of those things that could be just normal, like the kids are just being kids. Yeah. Um, so I would say, you know, documentation just for the fact that it's good to know when certain things are emerging with young children, um, yeah. whether or not that ever is something that they need support for. It's just good to have that, that not, you know, so that if down the road that is needed, they can look back and say, oh, we started seeing this around this age and X, Y, Z. And then, you know, approach it with the, with the, the fact that the parents are, you know, may or may not be in the place to, to uh, react in the way that, that we would like to see, but what you can do is continue to provide your best for that child and, um, you know, keep, keep doing what you can do, approach it out of curiosity, approach it out of a way of we're on a team and I want to help your child. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if you have other concerns, just cause I've been on the opposite side of like, I'm, I'm overwhelmed and I don't know what to do. I don't feel yeah. like I have strategies to help this child. Yeah. I feel like I'm failing this child. Well, then if you go speak to, you know, someone else about those, I think they're valid concerns and valid feelings that need to be heard from an educator standpoint, but that would be someone that is not the parent to, you know, discuss. Yes. With. So I, and I think it's important to find someone that you can talk to also, um, see if there's someone that can support you. Um, you know, those kinds of things are going to be really important to, to make, to find the best environment for that child. And it may be some simple changes, you know, that you can make in your program. Um, but I do strongly feel that if a lot of more programs just gave kids more time to move, more time outside, more choices, then 
a host of some of the things that many children struggle with across the board would yes. be a non-issue. So, yes. I'm not, I'm not saying that means there wouldn't still be children who need specific support. That's not, I'm exactly. not just saying that. But I'm just saying, I will say this from my experience too. My new, my new program, I run it very differently than I ran my, my other program. And as I learned and grew in that program, but I no longer have an organized circle time. I no longer make my kids sit there and listen to a story. Mm-hmm. They want to listen. They listen. Yep. Or a lot of the times they'll just bring their toys right next to me yeah. and they play while I'm reading. They're still listening. Yeah. And so I noticed, man, I don't ever have to tell a kid to be quiet or to yes. sit still because it's not an issue. Yes. So that's just one example of like, and that may not be related specifically to this, but I'm just saying in general and, and the research, we know the research about added outdoor time, how that benefits the eyes and the brain and how it gives us that, um, that immunity boost and all those things that are just overall good for, for yeah. everyone, adults and children. Um, I think the more we can, we can, those can be good ways to support all the kids in your classroom too. Um, giving them more time to move, giving them more time outside, time in the natural light. Um, yeah. and more choices. There's going to be choices that maybe you can't give them. And I get that. Like I've talked to so many people on Instagram who've been like, Oh, I really want to do, but I have no choice. And I yeah. hear that concern. And I think it's valid because I, I believe that because there are some places where they are going to get in trouble or they have so much stuff they have to prove they're doing that they can't give the child a two hour recess, you know? So, so that's, that's out there, but I think the, do what you can do. That's what I always tell them. Anything that you can do, that extra 15 minutes of recess, that little bit more freedom during your circle time, that extra hands-on sensory time, it's not a waste. Yeah. It's not. And so I always just tell people, even I feel like there's more that I wish I could do that I'm still growing in and I'm not quite there. Um, And I sometimes feel guilty about that. I'm like, man, I need to like do this and that, but it's a process and I'm trying not to make myself feel guilty about it. I'm doing what I can do for the children I have. And that's yes. what I'm going to do. And so that's what I, that's what I would say. That's gold right there. Cause I think we just like, we beat ourselves up because we're not perfect, but we're doing the best that we can with the knowledge that we have. And that's, that's what we need to be doing. We know better. We do better. So right. yeah. Um, okay. I want to know how, so a lot of times we talk about success and what that looks like in early childhood programs and how we know we're being successful with each child. How would you define success? And I, I don't know, does success look different? I mean, success probably looks different for all children. I don't want to answer the question for you, but how would you define success for children, all children, no matter if they are children with learning disabilities or neurodivergent children or autistic children, um, how would you define success? I know how I define it. And I'm pretty sure that it doesn't sound, you know, fancy, but my biggest question is always, are they happy? Yeah. It has nothing to do with whether or not they can write their letters or sit still, or, you know, I don't know whether they can 
write their name. Yeah. I, and in that, some people may say, well, you're a professional educator of 20 years with a master's degree and a child with a disability. Your only concern is that they're happy. Well, it's not my only concern. Obviously, yeah. it's my job yeah. to support their learning. But I think, are they happy? Are they safe? Yeah. Because a happy child and a safe child is then going to be a child who's ready to try new things, who's yeah. ready to get out there and collaborate with other kids, who's going to want to walk around and explore their environment. And for many children who, who may have challenges in certain areas or need a little bit of support or they have specific access needs, it's, it's a little bit intimidating because, you know, you don't really know, like, you know, what, depending on what the, that access need may be, the more that it's kind of pointed out to you, it can be a little bit intimidating. So I think that those environments where they know that I can be safe here, yeah, I'm going to be, I'm going to be happy here. I can make my own choices here. Yeah. Something about that helps. I've seen how it helps children just kind of, you know, okay. Yeah. So because I'm safe here, because I can make my own choices here, I think I'm going to, I'm going to start growing here, you know? Yeah. And, and I, I'm, I, I start to think of everything as a, as a comparison to seeds because now lately in like the last few months, I've been obsessed with my garden. So of course everything is seed to me, seed talk. Yeah, yeah. People who follow me on Instagram are probably like, be quiet lady. We're tired of hearing about your seeds. But anyways, I think of it that way. Like, you know, what, what does it need to grow? It needs a, of the right environment. It needs nourishment yeah and it needs safety and yeah. so the same for kids like I think if they to me for my own child obviously I, I want her to be able to do certain things not because I want her to do them but because I want her to be able to be as independent as possible and achieve whatever she wants to achieve yeah um, but before that can happen I really want to know that she just feels safe enough to be herself and she feels comfortable to ask questions yeah and the day that I was so happy was recent when one of my children came over and plopped themselves right down in my lap. And I was like, well, it wasn't my own child. And I was just like, well, this child clearly feels safe enough with me that they can sit right down and feel comfortable. That to that. me is, is success. And, and the other way I would say too, is are they making some, are they making progress? Progress. I yes. Think, I think we do define progress oftentimes based on a you know, assessments and things like that. Mm -hmm. But to me, I look and I see, wow, I see progress in my child. I see progress in the other children as far as their skills and their, their communication and just their overall personalities evolving as they grow. And I say, Hey, I see progress. Like, okay. So it may not be the progress that, you know, maybe a different child would make within yeah. that same amount of time. But if there's progress being made, that's a positive thing. And so I would say, you know, first look at the child. Are they happy? Are they safe? And then are they making progress of some sort? And, and you know, you're going to consult with other people maybe yeah. in that to see the parent or the support staff who may be trying to support you in making more that progress, whatever it is. But if there's progress being made, I think that's positive. Yeah. For the child. And, and so I think about that too. Like, is there progress being made as well? Definitely. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to push back at you a little bit on one of them. Right. Um, and only because I've been working with a, like an emotion coach. Um, and okay. So happy. So there's like six 
big emotions that people feel. And I think out of the six, two of them are considered positive and the rest would be considered negative emotions. And many times we are like people our age have grown up like being pushed to be happy and show happy. And like the only way we're okay is if we're happy. But what that's causing us to do is to like shut down all of the other emotions and then push them aside and not feel them and like cover them up with other things. And so for me, part of my definition of success, I think, and I honestly haven't even thought about like, what's my definition of success before this. (laughs) Um, But as you were speaking, I was like, what would mine taking out the happy piece because the progress, yes. I'm in the comfort. Yes. And, um, I think that that would be mine, that they would not always have to feel happy, but know that they are safe. The same word you used to express all of their emotions would be like what I would want for children. Now, I don't know that I was there even Mm -hmm. two years ago, because, you know, you want the kids to be happy and you want them to send them home happy. And you want them to tell their parents that they love school. And that that, that's, that's what we want. That's what we hope because we want to know we're doing good, but in the grand scheme of things, we, I mean, we should want them to be feeling all the emotions and not just the good ones. Right. I actually, I agree with you completely on that. Yeah. And yeah. I think that that's the, that's a good point. And, and to the listeners out there, that's what we've been talking about, like yeah. how we're still growing and learning. Exactly. I agree with you on that. And I think what I'm, what I'm trying to say with happy, a better word would be to be, would be to say free. Yeah. Free to, free to express like, and, and I think that that's. We just got goosebumps. Like we just, you know? Yeah. So look, we, we just figured this out. To, we to just, yeah, we just but, did. I think that would, would be, that was kind of more what I was thinking in my head, like happy being in the fact that they're free yeah. to be themselves, whatever that might look yeah. like. Oh, look at that. See, like you can learn so much from talking, just talking through things with other brains, right. like, because <laughs> yeah. we just, we all think different. Like that's what it is. And sometimes the things that we think aren't, aren't exactly people maybe don't see the things that we think as the things that we're thinking because they think in a different way. If right. that makes any sense at all. I don't know. No, I don't, it does. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's cool. I love that. That they feel free, free to learn. That's a great book, by the way, Peter Gray. Yes, it is. I, I have it on my show. <laughs> <laughs> I love that book. Um, okay. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you want to make sure that we add? Um, just one thing I was kind of thinking about Tell me. As, from the parent perspective, our kiddos who are coming into our spaces that have, you know, different access needs. That's an, one way that I'm learning that some, some supports are being called access needs and we all have them. Okay. How, what yep. do they need to access their environment? So that's something I've been, I've been learning about. If I think about the access needs of my, of my own child. One thing that's very practical and and we can do in our homes and in our classrooms is just to represent all all kids. And I know that this is is something that's been in process with other areas of diversity as well. But I think diversity as far as children with disabilities and neurodivergent thinkers and 
and um, things like that. We, we need to be mindful that we are representing all children in our, in our, in our spaces. I went to go and find books that have any representation of my, what my child looks like. And I have hardly been able to find any um, picture books. Wow. And so I'm just giving that one example, yeah. like our environment, the things hang on the wall, the way we talk about families, the way we, we talk about just the things we do, the words we throw out. Yeah. And, and I don't think that most people out there are trying to be hurtful. I, I don't believe that. I believe most people want to be accepting and yeah. um, maybe that makes me naive, but that's something to consider, you know, represent all the kiddos that you, that you have in your space yeah. and whatever that might look like. And, and, you know, provide an, one, one of the things I had thought about earlier when you asked about the environment, is there a way that your environment can be, can have space for, for children to go if they need time to decompress mm -hmm. is is the space overstimulating and, and most people think about that only when they think of certain types of learners but yeah. that's not just that doesn't just apply to those kind of learners that applies to every like who can learn when they're overly stressed and stimulated yeah, None of, can. I can't no um it's like Maslow's hierarchy of need go, yeah yeah. People go to the office and get distracted because they're busy talking to their people next in the cubicle next to them, you know, but they can go and do their work in the other room quietly and do it on their own. And of course, everybody learns different. But I think if, if we can stop and consider that as well, like what's your environment look like? Is there is, is there some level of calm there um, for all children? And are they being represented? And then, you know, do what you can do. The thing that you can do is going to make a difference. And those, those parents, the parents are people who are just like you and want what's best for their child too, if you're a parent. And, and I just really believe that teachers are doing amazing work and it's hard. Yes. And I think parenting, parenting a child who has unique needs is also hard. That, yeah. Those things are both true. <laughs> and so yep. it can be, it can be a tough thing to navigate, but I think the more we can do it with open communication, I think best. And, and don't be afraid if you're a parent out there um, like myself, who's not sure of what might be best for your child. Um, it's hard, but don't be afraid to do what, what you really know is best. Exactly. Um, and, and, and it's hard because I know there's a lot of parents out there who want to do, but they're not able to do for various reasons. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to make anybody feel guilty about that, but whatever, whether it's something you can do at home or whether it's a specific environment you can put your child in. Um, it's, it's hard. I sometimes still think, well, if I don't do X, Y, Z, if I don't push harder on this, what if X, Y, Z doesn't happen? And then in addition to not being just a normal, you know, I'm a four, there's also these other goals we're supposed to be meeting yeah. that aren't, you know, should I be pushing harder? You know, you know, your child and yeah. um, it's, it's, you know, do what, what you know is best for them. Yeah. Oh, this is wonderful. So if people want to connect with you outside of this podcast, where can they find you? Right now I am over on Instagram at little lilac preschool. I'm also on Facebook under the same name. I am going to have a website that's going to be ready soon. Cool. Um, so cool. if you follow me on those, then you'll know when that happens. Amazing. So wonderful I'm out there. I'm learning and I'm very open about the fact that I'm still learning as I go. Yep. I, I will be sharing that, um, through my social media. So you can come over and say, hi. 
Yay. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your experiences, because I think sometimes that's the best way we learn is through other people's experiences and stories. So, um, it was a pleasure meeting you and yes. And thank you for reaching out and, um, suggesting that we chat about this. I think that there's going to be a lot of people who learn a lot from it and just your, your honesty and the realness and the, um, admitting the, is that the right word? The admission that we don't know everything and we're still learning. I think a lot of people resonate with that and appreciate that. So I know I do. Yeah. Thank you. Kristen. Yeah. Thank you, Kayla. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Hey, I need you to do me a huge, 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 huge favor. If you liked listening and you want to be able to hear more, can you please go on to iTunes and leave me a five-star review? I would so appreciate it. And then connect with me on Instagram. It's learning.wild. We'll see you around.